How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're seeing the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 238. There's a lot to talk about this week. There is quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. Well, we might as well just get stuck in Jake. Hmm. Do you have any fun trivia from the film of the week? I Risky do. business. Risky business. Man. It's going to be a risque conversation, I think. I do. I do like that title a lot, Zeke. Mm. There is like that literal use of the word business, which I wasn't anticipating. There's a lot about this film I wasn't anticipating. And <laughs> going risky into is it. more risque. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They, should, they should have added some extra letters in there to, or some extra apostrophes or mm. something in there. Uh, but that wasn't always the title. The original title for the film was White Boys Off the Lake. Uh, which is based, obviously, off the line uh, the line of dialogue that Jackie has quite early in the film. And I think the studio uh, didn't quite like it. They asked Paul Brickman to change it because it sounded like, quote, an off-Broadway play. Which, uh, I'm like, hey, oh, okay, a little, little, little prick there. <laughs> like uh, Tony Stark getting pricked at the end of Iron Man 2. That kind of, mm. not, not like a full slap or an own, but like just a little, just a little one. But, just a tiny it's a little, tiny little prick. It's a little offhand, backhanded comment. Not even yes. a compliment. Zeke, what's up? Do you have Do you have fun fact for risky business? I do. Um, it occurs very early in the film. Mm. The scene that I'm thinking of, and the scene I'm thinking of is, of course, the dance sequence when mm. Ferris Bueller, I mean Tom Cruise, <laughs> is left to his own devices. Um, his parents leave scene. on a on an elongated holiday. Mm. The old time rock and roll scene was completely improvised, which, you know, is, is quite interesting. Obviously, now, looking forward, 40 years on. Yeah, almost um, to the day. And we see how m- many things, obviously, Tom Cruise has done in his career. Mm. One thing most people wouldn't think about is his dancing ability. Um, no, people talk about his run a lot. Yes. And his aviation abilities, but yes. not his dancing so much. No. And it is the scene that... I think anyone who even hasn't seen this film, I mean, you and I both hadn't mm. seen it prior to this. We all knew this scene was in there. Of Yeah, we've seen so many parodies of it and re-incarnations, I guess is a word to use. Um, and it is iconic. I was very surprised how early in the film it came. Right. Um, I, I, was, we- I wasn't surprised because he's, he's alone in the shot. Yes. And and for what little I knew about this film going in, I knew that it was, it was going to get progressively more and more chaotic, I guess, as the film went on. So mm. that didn't surprise me. That's like, I kind of expected, oh, that's going to be the hard cut to the first thing he does once his parents leave. So I expect, But you're right, it's a very iconic scene. I'm glad we mentioned it right off the bat. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to digest about this movie. Absolutely. But, Jake, before we get there, we are got to mm. know what you've watched in the last week. Yes. So I've watched a few things. I kind of went on a theme, actually. Okay. Went on a bit of a video game theme. Right. So, I'll start with Gran Turismo, mm. which I did watch. Me and my brother saw the early screening at Hoyt's. I caught it so early when I went to log it on Letterboxd, yeah. there was no average score. There were no, like, That's reviews on the front page. That's how quick I am. Got to get onto it. So, I was like, ooh, I feel a little like, oh, God, I'm jumping in with... I don't have any frame of reference, like, is what I think about this film. That, that... And I shouldn't think like that. It shouldn't No, it should just be you. Exactly. If anything, it's me giving my most authentic thoughts mm-hmm. because it's the, the the press and the reception to the film is just so muted and doesn't exist yet. The film does come out wide later this week in Australia. I still don't know if Sony's delaying it because of the strike. I don't know what's going on anymore. But the point is I've seen the film and I thought it was okay. I I jokingly referred it to Top Gun Maverick in the, in the sense that 
it kind of has the same level of scope and visual spectacle and mm-hmm. like the the overwhelming sound design and just the the authentic excitement that those uh you know flying scenes have but this time on the ground on the racing tracks just think that except every five seconds it pauses and then a giant text comes up on the screen that says lap two or fifth place and then the race continues and then every five seconds it does that i god why why would you do that um yeah look i would i would say I was actually I very rarely do this seek. I was re-listening to one of our podcasts earlier today. Yes. The Uncharted podcast. Oh, excellent. Which it might be the most negative we've ever been on a film ever in terms of our Definitely main... unanimous in that negativity mm. too. There was a real there was just a real beatdown of that film. Yeah. There was a genuine disdain for that film. And I think that that, <laughs> that it's lasted too, which really cements it. Yeah, and it's interesting that that almost, that almost feels like PlayStation's first outing in terms of their new sort of uh, forceful output of film and television. Yes. Of course, they put out The Last of Us since then, which uh, has much much warmer reception, not only from from worldwide but us too. We both loved it far mm. more than we than we thought of the Uncharted movie. And then they've done the Twisted Metal show, which I have also now seen. I yes. saw all ten episodes of Twisted Metal. I'll get into that in a minute. But Twisted Metal and Gran Turismo, they feel like much stranger playstation for icons to mm. um or ip i should say to adapt because you look at naughty dog's stuff uncharted last of us very narrative driven very cinematic gameplay so it feels very easy to translate and for these racing games or in the case of twisted metal like vehicular combat it's like okay well they're kind of what is the story they have to kind of work a yeah. bit more from the ground up to create one. And what they did for Gran Turismo was more interesting in that they took the real-life story of a gamer, I think his name's Juan uh, Maddenborough, who actually joined this GT Academy thing, which led him to actually race in real life. And, you know, the, the posters are all slapped with, like, this is a true story. This actually happened. They really try and... I think they actually changed the name of the title. On my Hoyt's ticket, actually said Gran Turismo based on a true story. I was like, wow, they're really trying to push this. And I get why, because the story is actually insane. I didn't realize how like deep it went in terms of how far this guy made a career out of racing. Um, in terms of, I don't even want to spoil it, but just some of the stuff that happens on the tracks. And mm. I'm like, wow, this is heavy. And I actually, like, I can't believe I never heard of some of this stuff before. Yeah. So it's really interesting from that standpoint. But at the same time, and it feels like it should have been a home run because you have... You know, this loser gamer kid. Well, he's not really a loser, but, like, his parents look down on him because, unlike his brother, he's not, like, an athlete. And Yeah, they don't very... see the value in his skills. Exactly. He's in his bedroom playing his game. He, he doesn't have great social skills. Uh, ends up joining a band of other misfits and outcasts and, you know, quote-unquote losers. And this comes in the in the way of not just the other gaming races in his uh, academy but also david harbour's character who you learn a bit more about his past and how he was once a pro mm. racer and there was something about his past that of course we're going to learn you know in the third act what that was that kind of made him a bit of an outcast in his own industry so it, it, the film should write itself you know it's like this found family adventure as they they prove themselves to the entire world on a global stage and i just thought so many of the narrative things were misses the relationship that Juan has with his father, he goes like an hour with no screen time. Like, I legitimately thought the film forgot he existed for a good chunk of the film. I thought that's what the story was about. And sure, there's the worldwide aspect in the yeah. racing, but it's like, it should be about that father-son dynamic. Yeah. 
And the other thing I thought was really weird is you got all these races coming from all over the world, from like all these different countries, and not once did they almost do. There's a scene where some of the other kids are making fun of him for his. He's listening to. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the track. It's driving me nuts. But he's listening to music, and. I'm like, this is a great time for them to, like, bond over their mutual love for this, you know, the game and for racing and all of that. Kind of Queen's Gambit-esque, mm. where despite coming from different cultures and backgrounds, they all unite. Yeah. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. They don't really do any of that at all. And what I was distracted by was just the blatant marketing for PlayStation and Gran Turismo. Now, it is somewhat ingenious to set a film on a racetrack where you can plant your PlayStation logo on every single prop and set dress in the background on helmets and outfits. And like, it's kind of ingenious the <laughs> the way they can litter it and kind of motivate yeah. it within the film. But it was so overwhelming. And even like the story would occasionally cut to just random shots of um, polyf- digi- uh, digital polyphony, poly- polyphony digital. Now I'm forgetting which order then. The, the the developers of the game. It will cut to them like working on the game in a lab and like scanning real cars that turn into 3D models. And I was like, was that really necessary? Like it's an ode to how well made these games are. Mm. And it's it's impeccable the work they do to recreate the the cars and the sound effects and everything. Like I've known that forever. Like that's my attachment. Yeah, I remember to back in the mode. PS2 days, it yeah. being like, my God, this is like crazy how um, detailed it is absolutely insane and like my brother was like huge he buys every gt game and and like that's why i wanted to bring him to the movie but we kind of both just made the same jokes throughout of just like the story forgetting certain elements yeah. um the blake blatant marketing of yeah. itself it's so you're saying that um john candy i mean david harbour <laughs> uh, was not enough to get you in the the door his he was, cool running this character. He was very well cast. Yeah. And a lot of a with lot a of, dark past. With a dark past. We've all seen cool runnings. We all know. <laughs> Should do that on the show. Yeah. Feel the reason. Yeah. Look, I didn't hate it. I certainly didn't hate it on the level that, that we were talking about Uncharted. And I was pretty like tempted to give this a free star review because I was sort of borderlining on that. I enjoyed it despite all these issues. Mm. Do I recommend it or not? And I and it kind of goes back to that Top Gun Maverick reference where I was like I do think the the photography and the action scenes and the racing is wonderfully done yeah like it all feels very real and tangible and there's shots of David Harbour in the helicopter as they're flying around the track as they're like driving and like um practicing Mm -hmm. and I was like this is fantastic like some of these shots and these angles and just like they got a real helicopter in the air with David Harbour in the helicopter performing and the real races on the ground racing and they choreographed all that into the frame and i know i know it's not the most amazing filmmaking achievement there is but like it's a hell of a lot more effort than a lot of these big film companies yeah, put into and, their films nowadays there are a lot of racing films that will just rely on smash cuts i mean we talk about the, i mean fast and furious it's, mm. that's that's how they get around it they, yeah a lot of their spectacles are cgi based or they're absurdist or they cut they have like the tension deficit yeah. problems and it's like you said there is still artistry there and i mean it sounds to me like the film's you know one of those films that if you've got streaming services you're probably just gonna end up watching it on a streaming yeah service. it's a great streaming and i hate saying that because like some of the racing stuff is fantastic sitting in a theater the sound design is great and i i would tell you Zeke, i did not realize that i could be nostalgic over the sound of gran turismo menu sounds when you click buttons and it's like I, elevator music it is and I, I was shocked i was like oh wow this does sort of tickle me a little bit 
Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna end it at that <laughs> sentence. Um, and like I said, I ended up watching the Twisted Metal show again. So this is the PlayStation IP I have the least familiarity with. I was shocked that I even did this because mm. I'm like, really Twisted Metal? Yeah. Like they they had a Twisted Metal game come out in 2012. This was like peak Jake buys every PlayStation game that ever exists period of my life, and I didn't buy it. Yeah, and play it. <laughs> especially when you've got other IPs that have never really had that opportunity at, at having a live-action show. Like, yeah. I mean, like Borderlands and stuff, like stuff that you think that this would... This kind of is comparable to Borderlands. Well, I was thinking... I think, the I, style and from tone of it. watching it, yeah, like looking at Twisted Metal, especially mm. when Borderlands is coming out around the same time. It might have yep. come out a couple of years prior to that. I think it's like, like you said, choosing the Twisted Metal IP. But maybe the the... The allure is in the fact that people don't aren't really familiar with the IP, which mm. makes it feel kind of fresh and and poke less uh, holes are being poked in it, right? Because we exactly. we obviously don't have a palette for this franchise, you know. I mean, yeah, well, exactly. Like, unlike the Uncharted and Last of Us adaptations, it's like I certainly can't watch this and like pick at the inaccuracies of the stories or the yeah. characters. I mean, I was looking for like TV time. Um, like ticking off the episodes as I was watching it, and it it seems like there's tons and tons and tons of references and and like faithful adaptations of like famous cars in the games and the characters that drive those cars and smart like interweaving of those characters, mm. like swapping them out for story purposes. It seemed from what I read, it seems like they did a pretty good job of that. I obviously can't contribute to that because I simply just don't know anything about Twisted Metal. It was very fun, I, and it sort of promotes itself as like it's Deadpool and Zombieland and Mad Max and it, it it does very much feel like that it's within that same level of humor the irreverence of violence and gore and an absurdist comedy with yeah. the vehicular um, sort of gun battles and explosions and so it's like it really does if I'm going to use the word tickle again it really does tickle that funny bone yeah. if if that's what you're into um, it's like Dead em- Rising in that sort of yeah, absurdist yeah. way and again, like I actually haven't played Dead Rising, believe oh, it or not. Okay, right. But I I know like the gameplay and the the poster and everything. And yeah, exactly. It's kind of there's a fun to it. Yeah. Like there, there's some shockingly violent moments, but it's all like in good fun. Yeah. If that's the way I could phrase it properly, um, I actually did quite enjoy the story. There was uh, what they do is they within like sixty seconds they do the voiceover of. Okay, all, all technology went to crap, and uh, Anthony Mackie, he's a driver, he drives between states, and it's all post-apocalyptic, and it was weirdly similar to The Last of Us, because it was 20 years into an apocalypse, and I'm pretty sure it started in 2002, and Last of Us started in 2003. Less dead daughters. Yeah, and well, even then, there's sort of a father-daughter-esque, heavy emphasis on the X, because they do have sex, but... <laughs> But the first half of the show is like kind of feels like he's guiding her through this world a little bit, and it was very similar, man, in in that regard. And I think that kind of tells me why PlayStation maybe wanted to do this because it kind of fit into the same like gamer dad, sad dad simulator. Yeah, and it also capitalizes thing. on that sort of juvenile teenage sort of the boys esque mm. demographic. You know, I think there's definitely a cross section there of. Of those teenagers that think, oh, the gory, massive humor, yeah, like oh, um, big swearing and and lot profanities of dick jokes in this, and, yeah. and all that stuff, that seems to be hitting really well. I mean, and that's a massive demographic for those who watch The Boys. Not that they should be watching it, but they do. <laughs> um, the Boys is far more like 
grotesque and, and like shock value, yeah, than than Twisted Metal is by a long shot. Um, and even then, like uh, the boys does have like those social political underlinings underneath what it's Absolutely. saying about co- uh, corporations and, and whatnot. This feels very like this feels very apolitical in that sense. It really is the thing that separates John Doe, Anthony Mackie's character, from literally all the other clans. And and these are clans that span from like the crazies, like Sweet Tooth, to uh, you know the 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 soldiers that are trying to bring law back to the divided states of America. Um, and you've got these gated communities that are all pressed in and nice inside. They're all equally evil. Don't get them wrong just because, of, you know, the, don't judge a book by the cover. But the only thing that separates John Doe from any of these characters is that he does have, like, this yearning for, like, human connection and, and to find, like, a family, essentially, or to find his person. Mm. Um, and that that's as pretty much in terms of the story as, as deep as it's going to go. So there is no, like, political underlining or anything like no. that. Maybe there is like really deep seedly, but I was watching it be like, it is very surface level entertainment for the most yeah. part, and that's perfectly fine. I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, that's fair. Well, yeah. it's it's a it's great to see you enjoy that. What, what was that? What what um service was uh, that? Stan. That is on Stan. Stan. Okay, um, there you go. I think it's a Hulu or Peacock. I think it's Peacock, something like that. But mm. it's on Stan. I think Stan have the Australian distribution rights. But I, I was surprised. I want to give a shout as well to Mike Mitchell. Who played Randy in Love on Netflix? He was quite good in this as well. He's insufferable in Love. You love to hate him, okay. but, in th- but in this he's fun. He's there really you fun. go. I only watched one other thing this week. I can brush through it really quickly. It's a Atari Game Over, which is a documentary about all the uh, ET game cartridges mm. in the early '80s that got buried in the New Mexican desert. Um, I thought it was a very nice documentary. It, you can clearly tell that it was meant to be like episodic. Like it was, it was a sixty-minute thing that was meant to be part of a wider series. I think the series was meant to be it was it was an Xbox series called Signal to Noise, and I think it just got cancelled. So this is the only thing that survived. So you can you can kind of tell watching it, the pacing's a little quick. Much like all those cartridges in the landfill. Ah, they exactly, and um, because they didn't break down. No, well, uh, yeah, a lot of them were recovered, and and this is such a bizarre, hilariously dramatic response to the video game crash of the early '80s, and there is that mystery element. I mean, the film ends with, like, this revelation of why they were there and what was really buried under there alongside the E.T. cartridges. Like, I, even I didn't even know. I was like, oh, wow. So it really wasn't just Atari burying a bunch of games. Like, the myth was a little debunked throughout this documentary. But I like the fact that this was the documentary that uncovered, you know, mm. these cartridges. Like, I, I've known about this myth for a very long time, and I knew at some point they had dug it out. I didn't realize that this was the documentary where the crew were like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it ourselves, and we're going to cover ourselves doing it. Which is cool, and that juxtaposes with the 80s story where they're interviewing all these people back then, mm. leaders at Atari and game developers, as they talk about like the rock star days of the early 80s making video games. And um, I love those juxtaposing storylines. It felt a little Oppenheimer-esque in that way, especially with the New Mexican desert <laughs> involved. Um, the only thing I didn't like, and like, there's nothing they can do about it, is that you got one storyline that's like very in the moment, like documenting, documenting the crew as they're going out to the dig sites. And then the other storyline is just all archival footage and interviews. Mm. It sticks out a little, and it kind of just makes me want to see like a proper dramatic, like a proper theatrical film that covers the story. Because I think that would be awesome. Yeah, I think it definitely warrants that. But um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was quite fun. It's free on YouTube. It's very easy to find. It's on Prime as well. But I actually thought the YouTube version was, it wasn't lagging as much. Which is weird because you had a similar lagging issue as well in the I past did. week on YouTube. I'm yeah. watching Risky Business, 
Um, but we'll save that for the second half of the show. Yes, Jay. indeed we will. Um, I caught two things. Um, I caught Triangle of Sadness, which you talked about. Oh, very nice. What, two months ago, maybe? Yeah, a few months ago. Um, I think you went to it in cinemas when it dropped. No, in. no. Actually, that was a YouTube rental as well, ironically. Oh, yes. Um, it was fine. I, mm. I kind of didn't see... It did get a lot of positive praise. It has, obviously, a very... Uh, it's very sat- dry satire sort yeah. of uh, film... Centered around two egomaniac, egomaniacs. <laughs> um, uh, I I sort of found myself by the time we get to that sort of midpoint when mm. characters are spewing because they're having a three course dinner in a storm. I I did sort of find myself kind of drifting out a little bit mm. of of thought. I didn't find uh, the film uh, super. Uh, it didn't hook me. Right, um, right. I thought there would be more to it, I think. Um, I will say the pacing I, I did struggle with because it, it feels like so many different films. And it's not like it's merging different genres and themes and ideas. It kind of feels like every 20 minutes this feels like a whole new film Yeah, in a way. And I, and I kind of agree. with like I can't remember exactly what I said when I first saw it, but looking back on it, I do remember the, the satire. The satire kind of worked. It didn't really linger long for me. I kind of, mm. frankly, forgot a lot about. It. I thought the ending was powerful, but yeah, I think it kind of does lose you a bit at that midpoint. Yeah, it could have maybe benefited from maybe a bit of trimming of the fat, maybe or mm. losing about ten fifteen minutes. I found, um, I just yeah, it didn't get me on board. Unlike the other film I watched this week, which was they cloned Tyrone. Ah, very um, nice. Yeah, I was big fan of this film i i don't think i like it as much as sorry to bother you um sure but there are a lot of things i really like about it i find that uh jamie fox's performance is just fantastic mm. um i find the dynamic really good yeah between. the three of them are really good together um there's just a lot of things that i really like about it i really like the filmic grain um which gives it this sort of uh, early, despite being a film that's set, I think, like in the relative modern day, it's, it's got yeah, that it's weird like 80s a retro... voice from the hood, early Spike Lee sort of. Yeah, um, it, it definitely feels like a purposefully mixture of like retro aesthetic, but like a little futuristic as well. Yeah, it definitely has the black exploitation aspects there. There's a lot of love for obviously Spike Lee's films mm. and those early sort of do the right thing sort of. Um, error of films it's got even the same use of excessive sort of dutch tilts at times mm. which is is very um spike early spikely and yeah the I, camera work is awesome in it and and the confidence i love the shot when we're in i think it's john boyega's in the car we're just sitting in the car with him for like it feels like two minutes mm. before he jumps out of the car and something happens but i just love the confidence in that camera work as well as like all the dutch tilts and and more funky shots if you will yeah and it's a lot of fun i mean there's some genuinely uh funny ways of tackling sort of that african-american stereotype and and breaking it down and i just don't think we see um films like this these this Mm. sort of cultural the political cultural film that uses a, a satirical lens with many other ethnicities, like I think mm. African American, like films, they 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 don't mind tackling it, but it's not we don't see the same sort of thing from other sort of cinemas of the others. They often take very dramatic, 
political stances on themselves rather mm. than a satirical sort of take. Um, maybe that'd be something that would be interesting to explore for a director at some point. Having yeah. Tackling their cinema of the other through a same sort of satirical perspective lens, but uh, the the one that jumped, I'm trying to think of something. The one that jumps to mind is Shiver Baby. Feels a little like a little bit like the, in terms of the uh, Jewish communities and obviously the main characters uh, in a lesbian relationship, uh, the, but very few and far in between. I think you're right. Where mm. We can see examples of that where it's a bit more satirical and and fun. It's more yeah. fun uh, exploration. Because I, I, you know, obviously, we I look to Australian cinema and and um, the way that we often see you know Aboriginal Australians depicted is often always in a very sat- serious historical lens. Mm. That's often the route that they go with it. It's often always looking to the past, commenting on on colonial Australia. And yeah. I'm not saying those aren't effective, but what I'm saying is there is there a, another artistic yeah. pathway to convey. Similar yeah. notions. Is um, there a fun way to do Sweet Country or The Furnace? <laughs> yeah, as weird as <laughs> I know it sounds, sounds incredibly it weird sounds when you say weird, it out loud. But yeah. think of like that's what I'm saying. Like, look to these films like Sorry to Bother You or or they clone Tyrone and and even Black Klansman to an extent mm. where they, uh, you know, the the first two I just mentioned they take an absurdist science science absurdist science fiction concept. Yeah. And then ground it in that political stance and perspective. Mm. And I think, you know, the moment when Jamie Foxx realizes that everyone's laughing and happy because they're eating the fried chicken, <laughs> it's hilarious moment. and yet confrontational. It's yeah. a perfect balance. It's a film that you 100% could do a whole episode on and, and break down yeah. aspects of it. Um, it's the same reason why I like Sorry to Bother You so much. I think mm. it's. The idea of these characters, you know, you know, Danny Glover saying to Lakeith Stanfield, "You've got to use your white man voice," and yeah. then them crashing into the room with the person. <laughs> it's, it, it's such artistry, yeah, and it's so confronting mm. too, and it's brilliant in that way. Um, yeah, I definitely, it definitely felt like that. They cloned Tyrone. It just felt like we don't get a lot of movies like this anymore. No, just this beautiful blend of different genres, like you said, sort of the satirical sci-fi uh, yeah. nature of it. I was going to say critique, but not really. Well, it is a critique of definitely societal norms and and power dynamics and all of that. It's all in there, and, and it just kind of flows in this traditional way. And, and I'm not saying, like, oh, we need less franchise films. It's just, like, this the feeling that this film invokes. Yeah. It feels rare. It was exciting. It was yeah. a, a film that I, I watched, and I felt genuinely excited for watching it. Yeah. Um, which has not been a feeling that has happened as much as of late. Yeah. Um, which is sad, but it is sad. It is sad. Um, That's so got to look for those hidden gems every now. And yeah, then. absolutely. If you want to watch They Clone Tyrone, it, it's going to be one of those films that I just yeah didn't get. Obviously, didn't get a lot of publicity. It just dropped on Netflix, and it's mm. such a shame because film like that would have been really cool to see have a have a cinematic run and yeah um hell even just get like the um the bird box bird box that was called yeah yeah bird box tree i forgot what it was called because it's like it has nothing to do with what it does but they're blind <laughs> or they're trying to blind themselves yes that's yeah, why yeah. the so title see it's association like place yeah. it's the whole yeah if yep. they give into that sense yeah sensory aspect they're they're messed up yeah, I just forgot why it was called Bird Box, but no. I But, like, something like that, where it's like they have a Netflix hit that just explodes. Yeah. You know, or even... A Gla- I know Glass Onion had, like, a theatrical release, and technically it's a sequel, but, like, 
Netflix do have films that that break out mm. and and hit the zeitgeist, and I think releasing this film in the same week as Barbenheimer was not very clever. No, it's a real shame. Mm. Um, and it's a film that one hundred percent give it a watch, especially if you liked like Sorry to Bother You. If you yeah. didn't like Sorry to Bother You, yeah, it's probably more palatable than that film, but I it think... definitely has a less crazy turn in it. Yeah, well, people I'm don't turn into you. horses. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that does oh, help. Oh, God. They're just the fried chicken just makes them laugh. That's it. Oh, <laughs> so funny. And when they go into the church. <laughs> <laughs> the church is awesome. But I like I said last week, how great is the lighting in the church? The lighting in the brilliant. nighttime street light. It's just beautiful. It was very just, atmospheric. and That's what I'm saying. Is that genuine artistry there mm-hmm. um, and consideration and... Having such a concise and acute vision, um, and you really do, you have to give full props to people like Spike Lee because that sort of way of Almost tackling kind of going cinema of the other, it, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't mm. for someone like him. Yeah. He, he truly is. I know it isn't a Spike Lee film, but it's it's that legacy aspect. I mean, it? it's it's irreverence. It's the same word I use for, for Twisted Metal, but in a different way where it is sort of not taking itself overly seriously. Yeah. And that way it puts itself in a different subgenre of films of its kind. Yeah, and, so and it clever. can still be as impactful. Like, this is... That's what I'm saying. It's it, it would be interesting to see a similar direction mm. with a different group of the other. Sure. Um, whatever that group is. Because... Mm. Um, you see them rise. Absolutely. And given those opportunities. Um, yeah, so... You said you had a couple of things you wanted to talk about yeah, before we jump so into the second half of the show. I figured, um, yeah, before we jump into the film, there's just quite a few things that I, I wanted to, to accumulate and kind of reference because there's a lot of stuff. Um, we're not a news show by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a few things. This came out very recently that apparently a bunch of Marvel VFX artists are trying to unionize. I mean, they've submitted formal paperwork uh, to do this. And uh, the uh, to the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees or the IATSE, hell yes, yes, let's go take them down, boys. Because <laughs> we've been saying it for a long time. I think, I mean, at least actors and writers and directors they've had guilds and they've had rights, and obviously they're being very much threatened with those rights. But um, I was just really glad to see this very recently posted. Um, I think VFX artists especially need this kind of protection because their work is extremely difficult and they are very much exploited in the industry so i was really glad to hear that um i found a page from nolan's oppenheimer script which i was very curious about because the famous story is that he wrote this in the first person which is very unusual mm-hmm. uh, for a script of its kind especially one that's gone to a big studio has been is being shot with a hundred million dollar budget i want to read a slight insert from the script to you and uh, this is very. This is page thirty-two. So it's pretty early in the film. So don't worry about spoilers, people. Not too much. Mm. Uh, so it starts traditionally just says Oppenheimer. I like a little wiggle room. Do you always toe the party line? Tatlock considers this sizes me up. So that's the first hint of the first person. Tatlock. I like to wiggle room too. Ooh. Interior bedroom later. We are fucking hot, sweaty, a little brutal. Tatlock gives up, climbs off me. Oppenheimer, wait, wait. I catch my breath watching her study my shelves. I'm going to stop it there. You get the idea. But I. <laughs> I Why for did 100... you that page? That's the only page that exists. Like. Oh my God. It's the only God. one I can find. I actually think they are selling this. I read somewhere that they're selling. I mean, this is how this leaked. But um, 
Oh. I just thought it was very artistic the way that he decided to write that, and I, I actually think it's reflected in the film. <laughs> His sensitivity towards uh, sexual encounters and yeah, that was uh, there you go. Well, you're very welcome, intimate. everyone. You're welcome. Yeah, if you want to know what Oppenheimer was thinking in that moment, it is funny because like you think you associate first person written language with like. Uh, really well written novels that are yes uh, yeah and then and this is like this is a film script so it has to be very punctual and precise and and clear that any any crew member or grip can read it and know how to light the scene or how to like you know prep to shoot that scene yeah so to mix the first person view with that curtness is it's a little jarring to see but I'm, I found that page I was like I have to read in the podcast because I was just so curious <laughs> what a first person script looks like um, and finally, I wanted to give a little shout out to two people who passed away in the last week. I was very upset, um, particularly for Mark Magolis, who passed away a couple of days ago. Uh, we're all dinning for him in solidarity. Um, it hit me hard, man. And what's sad mm. is that me and Kirsty were right on the tail end of finishing Better Call Saul because she, she hasn't seen it yet. And we literally just watched the first few episodes of the last season, which which Hector has a very big role in in those episodes. So watching those on the day he passed away was yeah. very sad because he's amazing in yeah. the show. And he's in Scarface and um, Ace Ventura as well and all sorts of things. Well, so. he gets one of the best moments in that show. So He does. There and that'll be there forever. And the other one I wanted to mention was William Freakton, of course, director of French Connection and The Exorcist, who passed away, I think, just in today or in the last day. Which was also very sad. Uh, yeah, but, but what, what you you've we both saw The Exorcist we together. Did. We did in class. What a and, what uh, a great film! I have never seen French Connection. It's always on the list. Me neither. And you know what? I reckon that could be a good director's corner <gasps> in the near future. Spoiler! I might, I might pitch that. Yeah, that might be a good pitch. But no, the I mean, The Exorcist is by far my favorite horror film of all time, easily. Yeah, and it would I, definitely make my top three. I'd mm. say. I'd say. Yeah. I have to give it to Carpenter for it. Ah, oh, fair enough. The thing. That, the, the thing is pretty immaculate, I will give you that. But um, I think The Exorcist, and, and partly because that was the film I chose to study and do a writing on or a yeah. piece on in, in that first year of uni. So there's that attachment as well. And I, I've done so much research on how he made the film. And, and, and so, yeah, just very sad to hear. But hey, these things happen. They just happen. Life rolls on. Exactly. Well, then, I guess, without further ado, do you have any other career updates you want to do in before we jump into the film of the week? Oh, just chipping away at Skin and Blister, VFX. I sent you a shot, didn't I? You certainly did. The fairy lights. Yes. Added some more fairy Looked lights very in good. Been removing rain droplets. So excited. Oh, it's close. It's very close. Our sound guy, is, uh, he's in the Gold Coast right now. So as soon as he gets back, put him back to work. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> then it is time for us to move into our film of the week by Jake. What are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Risky Business.
An upper-class suburban teenager dares to turn his family home into a brothel while his parents are on holiday. However, his recklessness leads to an unfathomable fiasco. Oi! Whoa! A brothel! A brothel, Zeke! Yeah, look. Oh, rude! Obviously, our first time watching this film. Yes! And I... Like you said, there's, there's some iconography. You know, Tom Cruise dancing, his underwear... Um, the whole brothel house turned into brothel. I'm pretty sure that's a Family Guy episode. Um, you know, <laughs> it's been referenced in pop culture. This film, and uh, beyond that, I didn't really know what else to expect. And um, I mean, you and I both were a little like, "Oh, this isn't quite the film we thought we were watching." Yeah, and, and to be honest, yeah, I'm looking at the director Paul Brickman, who. Mm. Has actually only got one other feature credit to his name, which uh, came out seven years after this. Um, he directed a film called Men Don't Leave, mm. and then did a short film called Allison in 2012. So, what an enigma. Yeah, and I, I think part of that, I was doing a little reading earlier today about the, there is like an alternative ending to this film. Uh, that was the original ending he pitched, and I think the studio request for something a bit more lighthearted. Um, not that the original ending was like dour or, or, or sour or anything like that, but it just felt a little more, you know, artistical, so to speak. But I think this film is surprisingly artistical in in a lot of ways. So he's a sort of you're right, an enigma of a director who made a film that just feels on paper like such a quintessential '80s, like kind of rom com, crazy idea. Yeah, that, it, there's a lot more to it's it. It's almost it's almost as if National Lampoon and David Lynch conceded, and this is how Risky Business was born. It's, <laughs> You know, it's got this absurdist concept of a young juvenile man thinking that owning a brothel for a night is going to fix fi- his financial woes. And mm. I do think the logline is misleading. It, it He's almost corralled into that um, decision yeah, with, yeah. No, with no other choice. And... Um, and obviously, like I said, it had that Lynchian feel, which you were actually the one who brought that up, which is very yeah, true. Yeah, it felt like sort of the graduate, but like Lynchian, the sort of suburban front with the seedy underbelly. Yes. The blue yes. velvet-esque in that sense. And there's even the sequences of, of surrealism, and, mm. and they're under the guise of, of daydreaming or dreaming, but at times it almost just feels, yeah, sort of ethereal in its nature and presentation. Yeah. Um, and look, I, I think the film is just honestly, is a bit of an oddity and it, and it, like you said, an enigma in itself because it, it feels out of the profile of now what we know a Tom Cruise film to mm. be. Um, even a couple of years after this, he goes on to do, like we said, the, the color of money and, and Top Gun, which definitely, although the color of money is sort of, you know, we don't see him in any other Scorsese film. Mm. He's playing this sort of arrogant, hotshot character in it, so it's still kind of the mould of what becomes the Tom Cruise character. that we know of. Whereas, as this one, I guess he does have that hotshot aspect, but it's almost feels like his character has, like, that Shining-esque broken factor (laughs) to it. He kind of breaks as a character. Yeah, there's a little bit of a sociopath aspect underneath it which yeah. is masked by the tom cruise charm of it all and and i'm i made a very similar point in my notes that you just made then with tom cruise in terms of the, if you know if we consider this his breakout role and by many accounts it is 
he does start out surprisingly humble and sweet at the beginning of the film. And mm. you're right, eventually we do see the the cruise isms where his suave confidence sort of shines through and yeah, and we're making the smile. we're making the thumbnail of that crazy smile because it, it's the birth of that crazy smile. Yeah. <laughs> but I and I, I wrote I'm like, is this a chicken and egg situation? Because it's like we see him almost grow into the Tom Cruise that we know today, like the big movie mm. star persona inside this film. So was it something that was always inside him? Or was it the fact that this was his first big his first big breakout film is what sort of molded him into that? Is it forty years of typecasting? <laughs> well, yes and no, because I, I every now and then you get like a but then again, collateral, he's also a bit of a psychopath in that, so yeah, you he kind of just plays Tom Cruise in every film, but like he's stretched enough in different. Okay, he's like action confident Tom Cruise. He's psychopathic confident Tom Cruise, and <laughs> yeah, the, he's never ever going to play a, a feminine man. Right, like he he probably is arguably the most masculine male actor out there mm. in the sense that. I mean, to the point in Magnolia, he's literally playing this misogynistic spokesperson for toxic masculinity right. and, and oh, male empowerment. Um, <laughs> Zeke's doing the quotation quotations. marks. Um, well, that's, that's what he is in Magnolia, and he's got suppressed daddy issues. So, yeah. Um, but it, it is quite interesting. In a lot of ways, he kind of is that character, and, and if anything, like you said, this is that flagpole moment of the idea of this teenager who's basically living out the wildest fantasies of a teenager, mm. but not with, but also dealing with the ramifications of that indulgence. I mean, we're essentially watching a film that encapsulates the obsession with paraphernalia that teenagers have. Mm. Um, but seeing the, the dark side of, what happens when we that indulgence becomes reality? Yeah, I mean, and and I think you're hitting a lot of key words there because I think like fantasy and and dreamlike, and then the contrast that is reality where it kind of slowly turns into reality. And I felt that with the pacing of the film because, like I said, the film opens with this sort of dream sequence and it's very sensual and lustful and but it's also scatterbrained because it's also intermixed with him like running late to his exam or, or and so mm. so there's the duality there of like him the pressure that his parents put on him to to study hard and get into princeton and, and study business but then there's also just the general teen angst and lust uh that him and his friends all share mm. and there's a bit of that peer pressure angle as well i mean the first call girl that is on the phone he's not the one that makes that call no it's his mate doing it for him yeah and 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 i i love that 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 sort of mixture is represented by this, again, this weird floaty pacing because so much of the film just feels so kind of slow and sensual and almost feels like the build-up before you get your... You know what I mean? Just... Yeah. And, yeah no, I do. I it's do. so interesting. I, do. I find... Um, and there's these interesting editing choices I find uh, in the latter parts of the film, but... You know, because we always think of that, like I mentioned at the start of the show, the old time rock and roll, which is mm. feels that song, and that the, they do have quite a few like popular song choices throughout mm. the film. I mean, Phil Collins comes in a bit later with them yep. in the air tonight, and it and it's so interesting because that one, that old time rock and roll, it, it feels like this juvenile outburst of "Yeah, I'm home alone" sort of yeah. vibe, whereas. Like you said, the music and the tone of the film does become more sensual at moments, but then um, those are only in the times, yeah, when they use a song to sort mm. of underlay it. But 
I found the Phil Collins one really interesting in the latter parts of the film because it's quite disjointed from the scene that actually happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you kind of got the slow shutter going on. They're all slowly waiting for everyone to leave the train, which I believe is the Chicago L train, which I think is like one of the busiest trains mm. in America, I, suppose. I guess that's the assumption. So just like that, that tension, you know, that sexual tension, they're waiting for the right moment. And, yeah. I, and I love that. But like you said, it's interesting juxtaposition with the music because the rest of the score is done by Tangerine Dream, which has such a such a different sound from those mm. source tracks. So, I, again, I think you're right. There's a duality there that they're really playing with. And, and that train scene, they kind of clash, musically at least. Yeah. It, it is, in a lot of ways, it is the more juvenile or, or pardon the pun risque mm. version of a, of the graduate really it's oh, a, absolutely it's yeah. a person from well i mean to the point where they've got those pov shot i mean that one take of that pov as as um Cruz is moving through the house mm. um mm. and listening to his parents being like this is the flight we're on don't be messing anything up and stuff yeah. like that and it's such a um, a moment that's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what's happening. And then, yeah, that first scene when... Um, I'm just going to get the character names up on the top of my head. Um, oh, when oh, Lana... My... When oh, we're Lana, introduced... Right. Uh, when Joel's introduced to Lana, is this sort of ethereal moment. And, and I swear for a second we almost get the same in-between legs shot um, mm. that we get, uh, you know, from, from The Graduate. But... It definitely has that same sort of uh, seduction aspect as this person that is not good for our protagonist comes into their life um, and sort of capitalises on the mm. misdirection of, of a youthful person. Um, yeah, well, was... I, I guess it's a good way to segue into the, I guess, the analogue of the whole story, the business analogue, and, and I guess the money that he gets from his parents or you can consider it like the initial investment mm. and then when Lana comes in obviously you're right this this story begins to unfold and and I think this was something that I don't want to get too far with this already but I think it in the alternative ending he directly asks her their final conversation is were you always planning to to dupe me essentially was it always like this scam that you're building from scratch and I kind of like. Well, it's still ambiguous, even in the ending. She doesn't. She takes a very long time to say no, it wasn't. But also, I think you think I'm lying. So there's a bit of ambiguity in both endings. But well, I'm going to ask you outright. Do you think when she came in on that first day, that very over the top, <laughs> the doors fly open and the leaves go flying in? From that moment, is she trying to scam him? This is yeah, all yeah, I think there's that capital the fact she goes through the back and um, there is that and that that's so interesting because I think this film in a way you know we're talking about what was the films that feel directly correlated to this which was The Graduate you know it comes out 15 years before but there are aspects to this film that follow the same sensational surrealism of something like American Beauty you know mm. um, you know that doors opening with the leaves rustling i immediately thought of like the american beauty-esque vibe um and just attraction and lust and yeah and in inappropriate thoughts inappropriate (laughs) get jesus get help um what would jesus do in this scenario yeah um no but it's true and it's such an interesting um like you said i i think 100 percent. i find the ending kind of a little strange because Mm essentially 
you know, we're talking about the L train sequence and we don't want to jump around too much, but I feel like she was playing him the whole time and, and the ending to me feels so off. It does feel like a studio ending, the fact right. that they're in this weird sort of pseudo relationship and essentially, uh, you know, it it's kind of odd because it doesn't, I don't know, warrant it. You don't feel like it was earned. No, because I, I think mm. she's constantly one step ahead of him and is and is detrimental to him. Um, and it, I actually I had to laugh about half. I think it's just over halfway through the film. You laughed through half of the film, <laughs> but about halfway through the film when um, she touches the car and then walks away oh, from and the car, and then the car rolls oh, into the... Oh, she knocks over the, yeah, the clutch, sure. But it's quite funny, because it was like, everything she touches falls apart for him. Mm. Like, it has... She has that the almost... Egg and, yeah. The evilness to it, like, that she's just maniacally taking advantage of this clueless idiot, mm. rich boy, um, in which he is an idiot. Like, he's, to me... I find it so funny in the the latter parts when, you know, even like it says in the in the log line, you know, he opens a brothel. He doesn't open a brothel. She opens a brothel. <laughs> He's got no choice. He is a passenger the whole time. Right. And it makes it funny when he's doing the whole like salesman thing when all he's really doing is he's putting in a cigarette in his mouth because it's the like he thinks it's the it's the Steve McQueen coolness. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's not like he's got that suave. He's a teen, he's a boy playing dress up, essentially. Mm. He's never actually in control. He's not a, a pimp, you know? Yeah. Uh, and obviously the, the film definitely isn't trying to make him out like he's this cool guy. I mean, that, that, that whole world gets completely discon- uh, deconstructed. That perspective gets completely taken apart when he's opening sequence by himself is him and his Dax right, power right. singing. We're meant to think he's this juvenile rich boy. And yeah. I feel like the film is trying to be that sort of uh, rich boy. Like you said, the, the boys of the white lake mm. sort of satire yeah. um, in which sort of the, the lower class kind of wins in the uprising of the rich, but it's also the, the, how we find these, these narratives of people that have got everything but uh, aren't content with it, quite laughable and satirical in their They're, underlying narrative. Mm. There's a fantastic conversation they have, um, Joel and Lana, where she's talking about, I think he... And I think this is when they're on the car. She's already knocked the clutch over, but the car's not started moving yet. And, and she talks about her past and like why she got into this business and someone who had a stepdad would come onto her and she would have to leave and... And it, it is interesting to see that was directly addressed, like their socioeconomical differences of he's growing up in this, you know, lovely home with rich parents and these aspirations of going to Princeton. And she was in a situation where she couldn't do any of that. So now she sort of got the leg up on him in terms of the street smarts of all of it. And she even makes the comment about the $400,000 car. So I, I love that that's very directly pointed out, their dynamic in that scene. But it's interesting because... I think this film plays it, it sort of balances on that rope so well that everything you just said, I didn't necessarily agree with while watching the movie, but also I think the movie doesn't do anything to dissuade any of what you've just said. I think you're completely correct. 
while I also sit here and think like I think there was some sort of like actual connection between those two characters and and do I think Lana was trying to screw him over from the beginning? I actually really don't know. And such an optimist. I, I, I am, <laughs> I'm such an optimist. I'm such a romantic. It's true. And I think that's the beauty of this film is that it really depends on your stance. You could see it any way or the other, and the film really abides to either of those viewpoints. And I and what I was noticing is that Joel... So there's this fascination not just from him, but all of his friends of like this this different life and like the girls and money and opportunity and all these mm. things. And it goes back to that the famous quote, freedom bring opportunity, uh, opportunity makes your future, which is ironic that that comes from Miles, someone who seems so worldly at the start. He's the first one to be like, oh my God, oh my God, as soon as they're in the car chase. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes, so he has that full 180 flip as well. But there's this fascination of these beautiful women. There's the shot, I think it's of Miles opening the door to like 20 women. Mm-hmm. And it just yeah. keeps trying to close and it keeps opening. It's so great, that wide-eyed, mystified look on, on all of the boys' faces because they're all just little boys at the end of the day. Yeah, Like you said, we introduced Tom Cruise in his underwear. I mean, you're right. That's totally meant to set up this idea of this is a kid so out of his element, so naive and innocent. And yet he keeps being put in these situations because he's essentially trying to white knight for these girls in a lot of... Especially when the pimp comes in and tries to sort of rip them away. Job's the one he's he's trying to be a man and standing up for them. And I and the, the politely asking him to leave. <laughs> exactly. And I love the response because again this goes back to the entire business analogue of the film and this is like the the soul crushing reality of small business getting trampled by big business and just the just the harsh realities of which happens all the time in the business world. As a capitalist. As a as a self proclaimed capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um no, but then he says the line. I'm trying to remember. It's uh, something on the lines of like the the thing you should know is never to like intrude on someone else's livelihood or the yeah livelihood or whatever the word is. And I, yeah, I just I love all the they're just all sort of seeped into the story, mm. the business analog, and even on the phone when he's talking to his mother and he makes a comment of like oh, like the money it just goes away so quickly, it comes out so quickly. Um, or just the again white knighting for these girls and and like you said Lana, whether it's intentional or or her being maybe clumsy because it's like I, I it's meant to be ambiguous whether she knocked the clutch over on purpose mm. to destroy that car, knowing the chain of events it would lead down to him making money at the brothel and then eventually having to pay it all back to get his furniture. Yeah, um, I think it's a very good argument to be made that she did that all very intentionally. It was all part of a wider plan. Um, or was it? It's it, yeah. I mean, the film does an excellent job at skirting that line. I mean, yeah, you can make arguments either way. Yeah, no, it is a um, it's a film that I'm kind of glad we we watched and we we got to discuss. And I think that there there is definitely that sort of binary opposition there. I, I find um, I f- I find his sort of uh, deconstruction, his spiral into this becoming this hustler mm. is is quite interesting, and we do see those moments where she seems to have genuine affection for him, but it it honestly feels more out of self preservation um, than quite possibly yeah. else. Um, I think the in the the scenes where it's all about control in a sense, and they're both trying to. He's trying to wrestle his independence back, mm. but never really ever breaks free of it. 
because Lana sort of just has that spell on him from the moment the winds blow open in that ethereal sense and she's put in such perfect, picture-perfect moonlight. And um, I think it's interesting because the film is in a lot of... Well, it's it's solely from Joel's perspective Mm. and um, it's, it's so funny, yeah, after that whole ordeal... And having uh you know all of his furniture repossessed and then purchased back, mm. that yeah it's that impossible standard of the parents they come in and and there's that little crack on the egg is is the reason <laughs> to say he's irresponsible and, and can't handle anything and um in that moment you do you you get that sense of you do feel like oh it's just an impossible standard but at the same time uh, throughout the film it's like you know after all that he all that sleaziness and all the things that happened he manages to get in princeton off his entrepreneurial <laughs> nature um which is a nice ending um in a way yeah and uh, it's sort of like coming going to princeton through the back door despite like getting his mm, ass kicked academically operation at varsity the blues and- <laughs> <laughs> oh no that slowly the joke slowly seeped into my brain yeah. as, as i was laughing how was good like, oh, it's, how it's good great. was that um, um oh boy no but it's it's true there is that entrepreneur side and, and i actually i think that scene is great where he's um the first of all, the blocking is really excellent that scene is the camera keeps going back and forth and we're seeing different people come from different doorways and then people poking their heads through the windows and it's just great it's just such a great like humorous yeah scene and you kind of you can, I mean, I think we're quite savvy audience members now. I mean, we've just had so much cinema to absorb that we watch a film from the early to mid-80s and see, you know, someone failing a college recruiter interview. I, I think we just have the knowledge. Of, oh, It's obviously going to go the other way and he's actually going to get in because of this. Like, I think we're just savvy enough audiences. I don't know how much I, of a surprise that would be to an I 80s audience. funny. I think at the end of the day, this is, this is not... It doesn't always need to... It's just a film about a, a rich teenager that gets kind of spirals into this this mm. world. I, I find it. I definitely think it's more a comedy than a romance film. It would be the, It's an interesting romance film if you call it that. <laughs> um, and yeah, it definitely has the yeah the essences of a. It's like a Lynchian graduate in that yep. sense because even things like when he's imagining uh, being with a girl and. Then he can't get his parents and the police out of his head, and then they. Oh yeah, massive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, just that scatterbrain. Like until you venture into the world, and this is a great coming of age story for that reason. Is yeah. that until you venture in the world, that's where your mind goes, and you, you kind of just, you, you, your mind goes to these like worst case scenarios where like I generally thought when he was late to class in that opening dream sequence, I was like, oh, he's going to be naked. And the, the classic like, where are your pants? Scene. Yes. I was shocked that they didn't go down that route, but. No, I, I, I think it was it's sort of an essential tale or a story for him to, a journey for him to undergo. Mm. Because I think he does. He comes of age. He learns the value of the dollar. He learns about business. He learns about women in a way that he wouldn't have prior to this journey. Yeah, um, yeah it's I. And the more I think about, it, the more I really do respect it. Even though I, I didn't. I think I gave it three stars on Letterboxd. It's about where I sit with it. I think it has a, a things going for it, but it is a. A film that, at the end of the day, I see it more as, yeah, like that rich boy spiral comedy more than anything. The fact that mm. this character 
is yes coming of age but it does have that american pie-esque sort of maybe not as obviously as absurd as something like american pie but it has the the, uh incomprehensible expectations of a of a teenage boy Mm. on that sort of female voyeurism side yeah definitely um the rude awakening is always the irony that is always going to be entertaining to an extent and, and a character that has little to no control agency in their life mm. um, and continues to, every time they try and affirm or recapture that agency, they actually just push themselves deeper into a hole. Was, yeah. is quite funny. I mean, the, the fact that he gets to the point where after all of this ordeal and he's missed time trying to get the car out of the, the, the lake and he's talking to the nurse trying to get a medical exemption and he grabs oh, her by great, the collar yeah that's a great and we scene. get that moment where he's he really is at breaking point he's about to run off with the bride at the wedding sort yeah. of situation and and yet he doesn't it, overturn the situation no he gets suspended he gets pushed <laughs> deeper in the hole and i mean that's a great analog to i mean it's motivated in the story because like you said you can take the, the stand that that Lana is is scamming him from the very beginning and this was all part of an elaborate plan and that he was never going to get himself out of it because it was just too rooted mm. into what was already been done. But that's also just an analogue for a child who is maybe over-assumptive over of their own ability yeah. or uh, overconfident in their own abilities. Well, and it's just, no, you can't get angry or get sad or do anything that's going to get you out of the situation. You're done for. Yeah. yeah, and it is. It, it, it's letting go of all those inhibitions and just embracing the chaos, which mm. is sort of what he ends up arriving at and the point where he feels like he's failed his Princeton interview due to all of the noise occurring yeah. around him. And he goes, well, I guess I'm going to uh, Pennsylvania. Like, <laughs> like, And it's he does that, obviously, that Tom Cruise smile, puts the sunnies on, like, yeah. I don't care anymore. Um, and... Obviously, yeah, only when he didn't care about anything anymore. And um, I think we don't really get to see a super low point of this character. I don't think we... It's like when everything gets repossessed, he feels like frustrated and sad, but there isn't that moment in the film where it really sinks in how I've, much I, he's messed up, I think. I think there's one scene where it does, and it's it, to be fair, it's very short. I think it comes after the car's gone into the water that's a great scene as well and mm. that's just a great shot in terms of we we start on the mechanic he goes to the door which is elevated above his head he reaches up he turns to everyone and says like up oh, like everyone watch your feet or like have your boots on he opens and the water just pours out and Couple that's just a great shot out. yeah the fish the two fish d- yeah. dangling on the floor great there's a great composition great storytelling orders with one shot it's excellent but it comes after all those scenes and then he gets expelled and I think kicked out of the, the business program that he was in and and he, he like demands the bike from his friend and he goes to Lana and he just sort of cries into her arms. Yeah. And they do they do the full three sixty thing around her as the roommate's holding the door and I think that's probably the low point and that that's the one where he just fully succumbs to like the emotional vulnerability and like as Lana is someone who has just made his life so incredibly difficult in the last week, and yet he still goes to her for like physical comfort, and I I thought that was a really sweet moment, even though you're shaking your head because you're you're like this dumb kid, <laughs> and maybe that's it, maybe it's that this dumb kid, but I think you're supposed to say this dumb kid, I think to an mm. extent, I think for me the that you're 100 percent right, probably in the terms of following this narrative, that is his low point yeah. as a character. Not when his whole house gets repossessed. (laughs) 
and he has to give up everything. It's that, too late in the narrative. He has, he has to fix it quickly. You know, <laughs> I feel like it just would have been good to have an extra two, three minutes of him just sitting where there is no furniture. Yeah. And he's just on the floor, like, having a sob. Like, yeah. what has happened yeah. in my life in the last week and a bit? That's um, that's true. I, I guess... Like, and at that point, I feel like the pacing of the film, once they start, like, organising the broth and getting all the guys in, it feels like that's when the film very purposely shifts gear in the pace, where it feels yeah. like it's really propelling forward, and it, it feels very different from the, the slow, ethereal fantasy of a dream-like yeah. pacing Well, it becomes previous. almost a hustle comedy. It, it, yeah, it, yeah. In a way. Like, it's like, like you said, it's that comical scene where there's 14 girls who come walking through the door <laughs> it's like and then having the the princeton um interview occurring like yep. there's nothing about this you know this quote brothel that's that's naughty we don't see anyone having like sex or anything like that it's very bureaucratic because we hear we hear like oh next <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Someone goes it's upstairs. very much turns into yeah like i said those national lampoon sort of like comedies yeah. you know like we're playing this scene out for comedies you know she's we only get the sort of sensual sort of um, sort of sexual engagements until after the night's closed. They're mm. closed for business, and that yep. occurs between Lana and, and Joel. And and but the time when the the brothel was operating, mm. yeah, it's it's more played for comedy more than anything. Yeah, it's about I, I, that I, lightheartedness, and I think that's what, from a producer point of view, is definitely why this film is, you know not got nearly as bad a racing as it, what it could absolutely have, you know. It's not got some Wolf of Wall Street rating here, you know. <laughs> I think it's M, which yeah, still feels I'm, a bit I'm, weird. I'm actually not even sure because we both rented off YouTube. I don't think it tells us what the rating... Oh, it might, but... I mean, I mean, my point was I think the film has sort of shifted gears in terms of pacing itself and, and you know, racing to the end that it, it didn't really have time yeah. to have him sit in the... in the. If, I think you're right. I think that could have been a really nice scene of him... But I, I think it just needed him to like quickly get on the phone and yeah. solve resolve that issue. So I think that's probably why that scene doesn't exist. I think we just like, and for me, why I think that scene could be important is then it makes him go like buck up and obviously have that call with uh, what's the the pimp's name? The pimp's name. It's Guido. 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 Um, and you know that makes that phone call with Guido. Feel Sounds like bit... a Star Wars character. Is it <laughs> Greedo? Um, is it but... wild, wild, wild Greedo? What? It is, is Greedo, Greedo, isn't it? Yeah, Greedo. it is Greedo. Oh, there you go. There's one <laughs> there that you go. Han Solo shoots. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's um, right. But um, yeah, no, it it definitely feels like that would add a little bit more weight, and it would also make the sort of punchline of the little crack in the egg, this egg, mm-hmm. this crystal egg. Just that little bit more, like after, like he's completely broken down. He's decided to buck up. He's gonna buy back his house, basically. Mm, yep. And it would make that sort of moment when everything goes wrong. We can see it in in Cruz's acting, which is great with his facial expressions, where he really just wants to snap at his parents, but he's mm. gonna wait until he's out there, um, you know, trimming the grass to put a cigarette <laughs> in his mouth and put his almost his. Uh, F the man persona. Yeah. Um, do you, what What do you think the parents' reaction would be if they did come back to a, just a completely annihilated or empty house? I think at that point it becomes more a comedy than a tragedy. Like, that's mm. the thing. Like, that idea of, like, he's completely messed up. I think it's important that he buys everything back and tries his very best and still falls short. 
because then that's when you're starting to feel that more graduate sort of impossible standard. Yeah, like he tried so hard and, and like the effort that he went through and what he actually did was so like incredible and, and impressive that you just feel deflated when he's still criticised. Because like, I, I feel the same way. I feel like it's almost like the response would almost be exactly the same Yeah. if he just completely failed and nothing was there. It's kind of like Project X where the whole film you're watching like, oh God, the parents are going to get back and this whole house is literally destroyed and on fire and and the response from the parents is just so like surprisingly calm and like oh oh well <laughs> i think because it, like it, it it's such an absurd thing that you almost can't comprehend it yeah how much of your material value you've just lost i need to rewatch project x i genuinely couldn't remember the ending of project x i all i remember is the scene where he's standing with his dad and the car's getting like lifted out of the pool and he's he's like annoyed at his son but also like wait how many people showed up again like he's impressed by him i just spoiled the ending of project x who cares <laughs> it's a fun film you forget miles teller's in it it's a fun is miles teller in it uh no not- no that's not him um who's in that damn film yeah. oh my god i'm gonna look it up it's one of those films you watch that's like a quintessential high school film and it came oh, out yeah. in high 2012, school. 2012, yeah, we, it was perfect for us. You, like, watch it and you're like, it's such a, like, you turn 18 and you think you're ever going to have a house party remotely like that. You're right, Miles Teller is in the film. He's not one of the main characters, that's why I got confused. Yeah. But you're right, he is in there. Um, you've got Thomas Mann, Oliver Cooper, Jonathan Daniel Brown as your yeah. three. Oh, I remember Costa. What a name. I've seen that film so many times. Yeah. And you're right. It came out forget the it's the the found footage handy cam. It style, is. It is. It? It's a pretty hey. It's a clever way to use that modem of yeah. The film, I guess. Yeah. I still think Chronicles probably my favorite. Chronicles amazing. I think mean, um, came out in the same year too. Yeah, that was back when it was a. Maybe we'll get another handy cam on. They've kind of changed it now, haven't they? Mm. And it's kind of become a dead subgenre. Um, but yeah, it'll no. it'll be popular during the strikes. It'll get popularized again because it's easy to make. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. I have a few stray things I want to mention sure. before we go into highlight scenes. Um, I love that we see those little kids lurking in the background so many times, and I, I love the implication that at any point they could just like blab to the parents about everything yeah. that happened. I love that implication. <laughs> oh, so it good. is interesting too mm-hmm. because it's yeah, it's that sort of like legacy aspect that they're growing up in this suburban neighborhood and seeing all this chaos and one can only imagine what chaos they will get up to when they are when they're of age yeah no exactly right um i was a little baffled and pleasantly surprised at the fact that we have a full-on scene with jackie the cross-dresser prostitute um there's no jokes not even really any acknowledgement to the fact that that she's a cross-dresser She's just kind of like this very quick guide to Joel in this moment. Obviously, passes on Lana's information. It's kind of... To be honest, I'm like thinking to that scene. Mm. And yeah, like you said, Jackie's only um, purpose is to give the card for Lana. Yeah. Um, Some slight like a mental role. Then you ask yourself, what really is the point of that scene in a way? But I guess it's the fact that Joel takes agency and calls Lana. Yeah, it, it gets him of, to that next step. Yeah, whereas if his friend calls and Joel sort of stumbles into this great night with, um, a, with a Lana, girl with yeah. Lana, then it's not quite the same. I guess the idea is that, like you said, it's about that taking agency, you know. 
he gets told about this girl, this girl's for him, and and he's the one to be brave enough to take that step. Yeah. And take the initiative. And plus, if the film had its original title, then that character would be the, the person who sort of ties it all together. I think for me, it's, yeah, it would be nice. I think, uh, do we see a clear arc from Joel? Does In he, this film. Does he ever actually fully take agency... Or is everything he do does in the film reactionary? Um, I, I still think he can have an arc without him having really made mm. much... Because he, he really does... I mean, it's kind of like Back to the Future, where like Marty, his whole thing... He doesn't really have an arc. His whole thing is to basically rearrange the pieces of history to come back so that he survives, essentially. And I mean, this is the other. This is the opposite film where he has the arc. He has his coming of age story, and and like I said earlier, he learns so much more about mm. his place in the world, money, women, business. Uh, even though he didn't necessarily have much power during the story, he just kind of he was the puck on the ice on the ice field. Just kept getting yeah. knocked around everywhere. Just I think I think that's fine. So Jake, mm. what was your highlight scene? I think. Like I said, I think it might have to be the college recruiter scene. And like I said, because of the blocking, the humor. Yeah. And and what I love is that it's followed, even though that's a very funny scene, it's followed very shortly by the scene where his parents call and they're confused because like there's a, a woman answers the phone. Like, oh, who's over? It sounds like there's multiple people there. And you've got Lana whispering all these naughty, dirty, naughty, things. naughty, naughty things into naughty, his ear. Naughty. And I, I was generally anxious. And, uh, to be fair, I was anxious for many reasons while watching this film, but that really... <laughs> for things other other than the film. But that really made me anxious, that scene. I was like, oh, no. Is he going to get caught out? I just... I like those two scenes back-to-back. And, and as the logline would suggest, that's sort of the meat of the story is this brothel scene. Yes. That he, he helps orchestrate in the house. Mm. Um, I also want to give a shout-out to... Um, the scene, it, it's, everyone talks about him dancing, but I love the scene that follows where he's eating dinner by himself and Frozen. he put, he pours, I think it's a whiskey. He pours like two thirds or like three fourths of the glass of whiskey. And then just like a, a dab of, of Coke. Coke. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, perfect. Yeah. And then doesn't even cook his dinner. Yeah. He's, he's, he's sucking on it like a icy pole. It's <laughs> meatloaf. Uh, I, I thought that was a nice little uh, oh and even like when before he meets Lana he's like trying to shave his face I'm like what's there to shave mate you gotta be I love this I love that stuff the I innocent lo- stuff yeah or, or, or like when Lana kind of moves in and her friend moves in and he feeds them tray dinners <laughs> like oh so what a great host <laughs> yeah he kept uh, them fed exactly Zeke what was your highlight scene I'm going to go with the car going into the river slash nice. uh, lake scene. Um, you know, you talked about some of the great cinematography that occurs mm. uh, after it goes in the river, but I think even the sequence in which we had, like, you know, we could talk about the Joel and Lana sort of disparity of, of realities, mm. which is which is an important consensus to her motivations and why what she's doing is not inherently wrong. Mm. Um, and just his complete and utter disconnect from that sort of world because his world is just completely foreign to that. But mm. it's the fact then, like you said, after the clutch gets mysteriously taken off, <laughs> just watching him, and there's some really good camera work with him like holding onto the car and they do the bonnet cam and 
Um, oh, that's right. I forgot the other. There's actually shot. some really good artistry in that in that sequence as it goes down the hill, yeah. and then stops on the on the pier, and we get that comedic. It's a little beat, beat yeah, before it actually crumbles in. But and that's great sound design as well to not really hint at the crackling, like like it just kind of happens. I'm, I mean, we're seeing Ethan Hunt before Ethan Hunt here. He's <laughs> riding that bonnet. It's like in the car chase scene. It's like, oh, it's Ethan Hunt. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was his early days of doing his own stunts. <laughs> yeah. On the and it, 100% that's him doing it too so you actually you make that joke but it actually is it's him the, it's the birth of Ethan Hunt exactly. um, and so Maverick I do like that scene for it's comedic factor but also it's yeah it's cinematic sort of artistry if not it's gotta be that rock and roll so it's just so good yeah it's so it, he's so committed yeah. to the bit yeah it's one of the best choices of like music in a in a scene I think it, it really does come off really well mm. um and I, I I do like the Phil Collins sequence too yeah, in the air. Yeah. Yeah. I always just think of the Cabri, the gorilla ad with the Cabri. Ah, uh, I think of the Hangover. Okay, well, great. Risky Business is currently out, available on YouTube to rent. Mm. Or buy. Or buy. If you're silly. I couldn't find it. I couldn't check it. I checked JB Hi-Fi. It wasn't Oh, you wanted, yeah. I should, I should have went out and bought a DVD of it. Yeah, because I'm in the same boat. I'm like, if I'm paying $5 to rent it on YouTube, Muzzle. and it's $10 in JB Hi-Fi to own it, yeah. I'm just going to go spend the $10 and I own the DVD. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good point, and I probably should have done the effort, but it's it sounds like couldn't find it. Couldn't so. find it. Yeah. That's sad. No, However, it's, it's getting hard. To speaking of stuff. streaming platforms, Jake, what's mm. new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Coming to Netflix, we have Heart of Stone, which is a Gal Gadot-led spy thriller. I saw a giant poster of this last week. So when I saw the title, I was like, oh, I know what that is. That's like all she's in now is spy, <laughs> spy stuff. <laughs> she was in The Flash. You know what? I started watching scenes of The Flash that just started leaking on YouTube because I, I was never going to watch it. Holy crap, that film looks really bad. But she's in it. She's in it, and, and all the Batman are in it. Ben Affleck's in it, and obviously Michael Keaton. And Dear God. Dear God. Yeah, no, it's wow. I just, I'm never going to watch that. Like, it's so funny to have, I, you know, I'm teaching with my year nines. Yeah. I'm teaching, like, we're doing the cowboy western genre, Jake. And Ooh, nice. it is generally fun to be like, we go through, like, I'm like, oh, they have to research which actors have been in more than three cowboy western films, and then which okay. three directors have done more than three films. So, you know, you got the Sergios, obviously Leone and Kabuchi. Yep. Just did Kabuchi. Yep. Um, and then it's interesting because I'll say to them, I'm like, well, the, the Western era, like the genre starts in the, th- like as early as like 1900s, but the spaghetti Westerns are from the fifties to the sixties. Mm. And I was like, you guys need to realize that from a cinematic, cinematic cultural point of view, you've just lived through an era of a genre, like the superhero mm. MCU similar, genre. Yeah. And I was like, and now we're at its funeral. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> Did they like hearing that? Yeah, well, I think they kind of agree. Because okay. they're all, they're even, like, I'm talking to even, teenagers, even and they're, they're kind of sick of it. Saturated, I yeah. think Endgame, if anything, Endgame is the Spaghetti Westerns Unforgiven. Mm. Um, you know, it really was, like, to me, it was that real flag down. We're ready for the next thing. Yeah, yeah. And we're ready to pay our writers. <laughs> and our actors and our VFX artists. Mm. And let them work proper proper uh, conditions. Coming to stand this week, we got films such as uh, Mr. Kaplan, Sausage Party, Emma, 
loving other drugs. This sausage party, like the animated film. Yeah. Again. No, no. Well, it's a, it's it's the original. It's not okay. a new one. These are just older films coming okay. to stand this week. Okay. Yeah, no. Although Seth Rogen's uh, Ninja Turtles movie, that's around the corner. Yeah, I saw him talking about it. The yeah. fact that uh, all of the turtles were in the... They recorded together. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm generally... And you know what? It's actually the best reviewed Ninja Turtles film to date. Wow. Which is kind of shocking, but it's true. Look at the... Obviously, the originals mm-hmm. that we didn't necessarily grow up with, but we've seen... Nope. I've seen, I think, the first two. I only saw the TV show. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the 2003 show is amazing. Yeah, I go with that. Flash, oh, fast um, forward too. Was it the one where they go to the future? Which, what's the oh yeah, 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 fast yeah. Fast forward, teenage S- Ninja Turtles. Fast flash forward. forward. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, dude, I would go to Jumbo like trying to buy the new DVDs like all the time because I oh, loved Jumbo. them so much. It actually, generally makes me sad. Jumbo doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the big elephant. Yeah, I know. It's very sad. Um, no, those were great, but then. But you think about the actual movies that came out. You got the originals, the 2007 animated one, the Michael Bay ones. Um, this oh, yeah. this is reviewed far better than any of them, which I'm excited to hear that because I hey I'm I said it from the moment the trailer came. I was like, this looks great. Everyone's like, oh, they they sound annoying. It's like, no, this looks great. Shut up. <laughs> I'm I'm excited for it. Aren't they supposed to sound annoying? Isn't that like well, they like they sound like actual teenagers in yeah. this. They sound like actual 14 year olds. It's like good boys. I'm like, this is fantastic. Yeah, this is great. I lo- this is a new spin. I love it. Good boys. <laughs> what a what a film. What a film. What a film. Uh, coming to Disney Plus, we have Jagged Mind, which sees Billy plagued by blackouts and strange visions, leading her to discover she's stuck in a series of time loops, possibly related to a mysterious new girlfriend. Hmm. Coming to binge, we have films like Megan, uh, the Mark Wahlberg film Infinite, Dante's Peak. Uh, and I, I wanted to mention this, the complete season one drop of Postman Pack Delivery Service. Are we on to that? That's what we're doing next week on the show. <laughs> First time we're ever doing a TV show. We're doing it for Postman Forget Pat. Forget Westworld season one and Breaking Bad season four. Postman <laughs> Pat season one. First time ever cinema side show becomes I the cinema it. Postman show. The cinema Postman Pat show. And he's black and white cat. Don't yeah. forget about him. Uh, you've also got The Trouble of Kanye, which... Uh, Am I dead naming? Is is binge dead naming him now? Is that because he isn't he ye now? Oh, it's just ye. It's just ye now, isn't Yeet, it? Ye, skirt, ye. That reminded me of. I, it's, ba- it's, it's basically Chalamet. just talking shit about him. I think this documentary. So okay, that's fine. Oh, because so, he said something controversial, so people were now like, "Oh, we hate him," even though for years they were all like, "Oh my god, he's a genius." <laughs> so funny the world is culturally so stupid sometimes uh, you're just like I, I think we're allowed I think to he's an idiot I think he's been an idiot for the longest time yeah he's never changed and people only after he says one really controversial thing are like like despite the fact he said about eight controversial things right but they drew the line <laughs> they finally drew that line no. there you go but he can date he can marry a Kardashian and we don't think they're all crazy and nuts no I think a good chunk of people do, but but then also a good chunk of people watch and promote their shows, yeah. so there's that as well. And buy uh, uh, Kendall well. Jenner's uh, crazy makeup that's worth like nothing and charges three hundred dollars for it. Goes back to Bilbo's excellent. I didn't like his last special very much, but that was an excellent, excellent bit where he's talking about like supporting female-led sports 
And it's like, mm. well, if you stop spending money in all the Kardashian stuff, then uh, it's all about money, people. It's all about yeah. money. Uh, coming to cinemas this week, we have Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's latest film. Sees a junior stargazer space cadet convention in an American desert town disrupted by world-changing events. So that's just wide release. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, well, I think it came out in cinemas like two months ago in the US. It's been out for a while. It's been, it came out in it June. strange. I know. It feels like a while that we've, yeah, kind of like Aussies late to the party. Well, well, TMNT, that's, that's another month before it comes out here. Yeah. So we're getting a lot of this now. Again, late to the party stuff. But no, Asteroid City comes out later this week. I am obviously extremely excited. We both adored his last film, despite... Maybe not, that's not quite the most popular opinion out there, but no. we both love the French Dispatch, so no. probably yeah, we'll see uh see what the upcoming weeks hold for us, but it mm, might get a we'll sneak it in there, I reckon. Probably will. Yeah. I can't I can't imagine we're in that quiet part of the year, so we we do... And now we're gonna let that slide. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a there's a reason we're not doing it next week. No, we no there is there is a reason for that. There's a good reason we'll mention it in just a minute but also coming to cinemas we have dracula voyage of the dementor demeanor dementor which is an adaptation of a chapter from the original bram stoker novel in 1897 the captain's log and sees strange and horrifying events befold the doomed crew as they sail the ocean voyage from transylvania to london it's a fun idea this one yeah so so i saw the trailer and and the more i think about i'm like oh okay so it's, it's just that one scene from um from nosferatu can't blame it on the rats this time, Zeke. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> Maybe it, you can, I don't know. It's an alien, basically. It's alien. Mm. It's, you know, the, they're transferring Jack Dracula, prepare for them all to get slowly picked off, and then hopefully something happens at the big climax. Yeah. The ship's probably going to get set on fire. It's <laughs> probably my bet. From memory in Nosferatu, the boat just kind of shows up and everyone's already dead. And then, like, the plague spreads because I think they blame the rats. That's my... But that's Nosferatu. That could have been different from mm. the novel. I mean, the no- novel might have gone a different direction and that's this is more a faithful adaptation of that. Yeah. Actually, I'm seeing this on Sunday. My mate Colin really, really wanted to see this with me. I was, like, it I was like, It looked right. like a fun sort of a bottle horror. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Um, Hopefully, it's like a tight 90 minutes and it's just, like, really clever and scary. Yeah. I don't know how much clever it's going to be. Scary. Let's hope it's scary and not too, like, mm. jump scare predictable. Sure, Try sure. Try some interesting things. But I liked the idea. I thought the idea was a perfectly smart, serviceable horror. Yeah. When, when I realized what it was, that it, it's basically just that middle part of Nostra, I was like, oh, actually, yeah, okay, that I get that now. Yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, I'll, I'll probably let you know how that is next week. Excellent. If I end up seeing it. And finally, I already mentioned it, but Gran Turismo goes wide this week, proper. So, uh, based on my... Uh, seldom yeah, thoughts. Seldom's you can cool. decide whether you want to go or not. If you love the racing and the action, um, maybe maybe we'll do an edit on YouTube where it doesn't freeze every five seconds, and maybe that would be really fun to watch. But I was a bit rude. I, <laughs> I, I, I feel bad about that one. But hey, seldom. That's just seldom, seldom. But uh, that's everything that's coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Excellent. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, mm. at least not for our film of the week, Jake. We're bringing a special guest on. We are, we yeah. are. And we're actually watching a film of their recommendation. But, Jake, who's the special guest and what are we watching? So next week in the show, we're inviting our good friend, Andy Newcomb, to come to the show. Long time coming, I think, this appearance has been. I think it's been 
I think last October was the last time we had a guest on the show. Yeah. So it's been a while, so I think we're well due for one. And he suggested next week on the show that we watch The Castle. My name is Dale Kerrigan, and this is my story. Dad is the backbone of our family. He made our pool table. This is my backyard. Is that the runway there? Sometimes you think they're going to land right on top of you. Well, I reckon we're the luckiest family in the world. But one day in June, a knock at the door was to change all that. This is a compulsory acquisition. Our oh, bloody government's trying to take my house. You will be compensated. You can't buy what I've got. Miramax Home Entertainment presents... I'm going to hit them with the big artillery. It's justice, it's law, it's the vibe. Vibe? Yeah. The story of a family. Now that is a head ahead. Who wouldn't let the government take their house. But it's not a house, it's a home. Without a fight. In the High Court today. Case of Daryl versus Goliath. The castle. There's no place like this home. A Melbourne family is very happily living near the Melbourne airport. However, they are forced to leave their beloved home by the government and airport authorities to make way for more runways. And the family must fight to remain in their home. Now, this is a classic Aussie film. Yes. I think that was... I'm not going to speak for Andy too much, but I think part of his motivation was to bring a little more Aussie cinema onto this podcast. Um, seeing our full list of the 300 and... Uh, so, no, sorry. For 237 films, he was not allowed to select because we've already done them. I think that was one of his main takeaways is not a lot of Aussie films in here. Let's let's fix that. No. No, we, we had a couple hmm. peppered around, but I think that he's picked probably one of the funnest ones to do. So Oh, absolutely. I, and I'm excited because I've never seen it before. Oh, boy, you're in for a treat. Oh, you're in for excellent. a treat. I like um, that. Yeah, it'll be an absolute steal. Like many things in the, in the magazines and newspapers that we used to read for advertising, like in Risky Business. Very good. It'll make sense <laughs> next week. Oh, okay, good. Um, there's an ad in the paper. Oh, okay. But until then, Jake. Someone would have got that. Someone would have got that, Jake. Hopefully Andy got that. <laughs> <laughs> Selling a couple of jousting sticks. Anyway, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with The Castle. How's the serenity? <laughs>